now as a human, I understand how my model arrived at a decision, how I then took that decision or that recommendation and applied it, what the results were. So now I consider that the next time I'm faced with a similar situation. So reinforcement learning doesn't have to be relegated to a set of models that teach themselves. Why can't the models help teach the humans? This is episode number 139 with Randy Bradley. On this episode of Transform Talks, I'm joined by Randy Bradley, who's Associate Professor of Information Systems and Supply Chain Management at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Our episode begins with Randy discussing Intelligent Assistance, IA, versus Artificial Intelligence, AI. Randy believes that if we look at things a bit differently, we may use the technology a lot better. So instead of thinking that a solution, tool, model, or algorithm will be making decisions, Let's look at how these tools may augment existing human talent. Randy has decades of experience in supply chain and IT research and strategy. The advice he gives on rethinking the way we invest in and deploy technology can make all the difference for businesses. Actually, as he says, it's a business need, not a technological need. He breaks down how more focus should be placed on improving the workforce experience. Decisions with the greatest impact may be made at the C-suite level, but they're infrequent, whereas decisions affecting a day-to-day -day operation are more likely to be made on the ground level, as those decisions are happening all the time. This is where IA can be used more effectively. Listen to the episode now to learn more timely technological advice from Randy. Hey, Randy, thank you so much for joining us here in Transform Talks. Thanks for being here. Oh, Maria, it's a pleasure to be with you. So you recently spoke at one of our events at Transform Fest, and you talked about leading in the age of AI, where you say something about how you prefer to call it, instead of AI, you prefer to call it IA, an intelligent assistant instead of artificial. Talk to me about that. What do you mean by that? I think oftentimes when we use the phrase artificial intelligence, it's overwhelming for people. And, and I think also it, it sends the wrong message. And the message is that a solution, a tool, a model, or algorithm is going to be making decisions on your behalf rather than it really assisting or augmenting the talent, the experience, and the knowledge base of the individual. And I found by referring to them as intelligent assistants, it helps people to wrap their minds around how to best deploy and utilize such an emerging technology. I, th I think you're right. I think everybody looks at technology as the magic bullet that's going to come in and all of a sudden, bam, all my problems are absolutely solved. Let's just give it to the algorithm. Let's give it to the AI and, and that's it, which causes a little bit of adoption issues, doesn't it? Because people maybe think it's the enemy. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. And, and in some instances, it has been made to be the enemy. One of the things that we consistently see is when organizations make a business case around AI or a variant of that, which would be machine learning, oftentimes it's from a an operational efficiency standpoint. Mm -hmm. I.e. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I.e. saving money. <laughs> exactly. But the problem is other members of the C-suite, particularly your CFOs, when they hear that, they think, okay, ultimately headcount reduction. And so when we do see those headcount reductions manifest as a result of that, we blame the technology or the adoption of the technology when in reality, what it's a flawed business case or it's a business case where we unintentionally led them to believe that we were going to take another action in relation to this. And part of that is because we don't appreciate the value of what this technology can do for us. There is the opportunity to really create market differentiation, primarily because the adoption rates are so low. As I always say, 10% or possession of this technology or the solution is 10% of the problem or 10% of mm -hmm. your answer. 
What you have to do now is figure out how best to leverage it. But given that there are not as many people who have figured out how best to do this, but there was a recent study that, that just came out, and I believe it was Alex Partners that, that released their 2022 study on their disruption index. And one of the things that they found is that CXOs were, are, are, are not as confident or firmly in their belief that the steps they're taking to address the supply chain challenges, and much of that is means steps they're taking with respect to technology, it's, it's overwhelming, nearly three-fourths of them are saying that part of that is they don't know that they're adopting the right technology. And their biggest challenge is that the technology investments we've made, we're not getting the tangible results that we expected relative to that. So it goes back to, are we really looking at it from a strategic perspective, or are we still just very operational and tactical in terms of how we think about deploying such a capability? You you gave you you packed a lot into that answer. You packed a, a lot into that answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to unpack some of this. I think there's one element of being overwhelmed with the number of different types or the vast number of technological solutions that are out there. That's one. I think another thing is the, a little bit of maybe there's a disappointment with what people are achieving with digital transformation. Maybe it's not what people thought it was going to be. And then there is, again, one of the things that I always talk about, which is the hype and the buzz and the noise around the, sh the shiny object syndrome. I need to go out there and buy the latest technology without mm -hmm. looking to solve the problem from a, and this is what I loved what you just business case scenario. What problem am I trying to solve? What is the business case? Let's unpack all of, some of that. What do you think is the biggest issue standing in the way of implementing AI and machine learning? There, there are a couple here, Maria. And one is, and I've consistently asked this of organizations I've worked with or other executive sessions that I have had the privilege of running or facilitating. What I ask, when you think about your supply chain processes, is it clearly known or well understood across the organization which ones you should digitalize? And unfortunately, the vast majority, more than 50% of them, say that it's not clear or they have no idea where the starting point should be. But yet, when you start to dig deeper and look at what they're doing from a digital standpoint, nearly 90% of them have digital initiatives underway. But yet, what we find is fewer than 25% of the organizations, and that's 25% of nearly 500 organizations, have a digital strategy. So we're doing something with no clear direction or pathway. And I always say, how will you know when you get there if you don't even know where you're going? But do you think people are just digitalized, digitizing for the sake of digitization? Do you think that there was maybe some pressure, maybe a couple of years ago, that if you're not digital, if you're not digital, then you're analog and therefore you're going to be left behind? Hey, we used to talk about it all the time as well. But do you think maybe that there's some solutions that don't necessarily need to be solved digitally that you just need to choose which ones is that what you're what you're saying yeah you have to be as i said you have to, you have to have surgical precision when it comes to digital and, and there's this misnomer right we, usually what we bring on the backside of digital is the term transformation but the mm -hmm. reality is this not every organization is willing nor do they need to transform their business and operating model some of them do but not all of them so you can you can be digital without fully transforming the way you do business and the way you go to market. But that's where it comes well, back to. Hold on, I, I want you to repeat that because that's a big statement. That's a good statement. Say that again. You don't have to transform in order to be digital. Transformation does not have to be the ultimate goal. Transformation is a business need. It's mm -hmm. not a technological need. So if my environment in which I compete or in which I operate has dramatically changed to the point where my business model or my operating model is obsolete and not yielding the results I need, then I should consider transformation and digital can help me do that. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the impetus 
for my investments. And I think the other part of that is we tend to forget there are two schools of thought around digital. There's the traditional view where it's really about changing the shape, form, and factor of something, right? Going from analog mm -hmm. to electronic. But then there's also a more contemporary view when really digital is about the delivery of value. And value could be by way of monetization. It could be by way of experience of those who utilize products and services that you put in the marketplace. And I think we need to start shifting more towards the contemporary view of digital when we start to use the frames. And that will help us understand I'm not just adopting technology for technology's sake. It's all about value add, but where do I need to add the value? And do you think there's a direct line between those companies that operate with this kind of framework in mind to yielding value for their clients, for their employees, for shareholders, et cetera. I do. And, and you just hit it, Maria. A lot of those companies are starting internal first. How can I make the workforce? How can I, how can I ensure that their experience is improving? Because if I can improve the experience for the workforce, I can improve the experience for my customers and my ultimate consumers, because they're going to be that touch point, right? That's the logical connection there. But oftentimes what we do is we want to think more outside of the organization with, without realizing that our, it's, as I say, it's like putting lipstick on a pig, putting the pig on a skateboard and pushing it downhill. It's going to be an ugly mess really fast. And so we really have to begin to think about the people that we rely on to do the work because they are the face of the organization to those who are going to consume whatever you put in the market. Oh, and this is a great, you've, you've led me down a, I've got a great question for you here. Cause I know that one of the things you talked about in your keynote was a 2021 study, which I think was done by the material handling Institute, which said that the five most pressing supply chain challenges of today but with hiring and retaining qualified workers being deemed the greatest challenge by most respondents. So do you it think is. that most companies that are turning to AI and are doing so in response to their inability to hire and retain qualified workers? That's part of it. I mean, and we've seen that be one of the top two challenges for the past five years. And, and, and in fact, that Alex partner study that I referenced, the expectation is that the talent shortage is likely going to be a permanent thing. Mm -hmm. We don't anticipate that going away anytime soon. And part of that is because it's not just finding bodies, it's finding bodies with the right skill set, which also means are we as industry partners, do we have this reinforcement learning where we're working with our academic partners to ensure that the level of development and education that they're providing is going to be conducive to what we really need. In other words, don't produce people for where I am, produce mm -hmm. people for where I need to be. And, and I think it's, it's so different because academia for so long has tend to lag industry. And really mm -hmm. what industry is saying is we need you to guide us. We need you to lead us. And if you think about it, there are various camps, whether you're in the hard sciences or engineering, where they are really more about let's push the envelope, let's move things forward. But oftentimes in the social sciences, it's, it's not so much. It's status quo. Now, to your point about is that why we're seeing great investments in technologies? I think that's one. I am a firm believer that emerging techs such as AI and ML, they don't steal jobs. They fill gaps in bodies, they fill gaps in talent, and they also fill gaps in efficiencies. And so when you think about it, that's the perfect way to do it. There's a type of machine learning models that we talk about, and one is a reinforcement model, mm -hmm. where that model looks at the end result and determines whether that output or that outcome was good or bad, and it learns from that. Well, why can't we flip that, Maria? And why can't we use those models to reinforce the learnings of the humans, mm -hmm. such that now as a human, I understand how my model arrived at a decision, 
how I then took that decision or that recommendation and applied it, what the results were. So now I consider that the next time I'm faced with a similar situation. So reinforcement learning doesn't have to be relegated to a set of models that teach themselves. Why can't the models help teach the humans? Well, it's brilliant because I think at the end of the day, we don't want to be doing repetitive tasks. We don't want to be doing right. the the really, I don't know, I guess, boring stuff. Let's be honest. Right. We want right. to be released to, to, to be creative. We want to be released to be innovative and, and come up with solutions that will help us deal with things like a pandemic that were to some degree, we couldn't have predicted this whole toilet paper shortage because that was a rationality. <laughs> that was plotted down in a scenario, I guess. I imagine maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone did have scenario scenarios where the toilet papers were gone. But do, do you think if we look at the landscape of supply chain where we are today, 2022, if we look at the landscape, what do you think are the biggest challenges? Moving forward. Yeah, we really have to begin to act like we're members of a global supply network. It's, mm-hmm. it's one thing to and to have a picture of it. It's another thing to make decisions when we consider that. I always say so just yesterday I was given a, I was given a talk to another organization about this and say, you've got your focal organization. And you, you realize now that your supply chain is not a linear entity, but really it's a network and it's evolving network. But then yet you have your global manufacturers whom you depend on for raw materials or finished goods. They have their own global network. So your network is dependent on their network. But then there's this flow that connects the two. So now your network is also dependent on the flow of information, the flow of goods and the flow of services from someone else's network. Now, let's see that thing grow 100 times. Mm-hmm. And now what we have is a true picture of what's happening on a large scale. A lot of the issues we're having around supply chain disruptions, and when we talk about it, we tend to be very industry specific when we yes. have supply chain disruptions conversation. The thing we have to understand is this, supply chain disruptions are likely to become the norm. We used to look at those as the exceptions and we would manage them as the exception. Now that's part of my business planning. I expect that there will be a disruption. But disruptions in the supply chain don't have to lead to interruptions in business. And that's where we have to come down to. Am I making decisions to ensure, because I understand that I'm a member, one cog in or one node in this global part of an e- In this ecosystem that we've got, right. yeah, this living, right. breathing ecosystem to some exactly. degree. And I always say supply chain is an organism, right? It's mm. a living organism that evolves and it changes from day to day, and in some cases, moment by moment. But it also consists of individuals and it's the relationships between those individuals. But now we have external factors that we don't control. It's one thing when there's a man-made disaster but when they're natural disasters, you can't control those things, you know, what, but what you can do is you can adapt. And so when I hear this and say, are you investing in AI for the sake of resiliency? Because I have a different take on resiliency. To me, resiliency is a reaction. You yeah. have a steady state, you have a disruption, that disruption leads you to go into responsive mode, but that responsive mode is where resiliency kicks in. It's nothing more than the ability to keep going in the it's face. Adaptability. It's adaptability. It's adaptability. Exactly. So resiliency is not a capability. It's a reality we have to focus on is agility. And, mm-hmm. and so when you think about the agility means whether I expect it or whether I don't expect it, I can sense, I can respond, I can thrive. And that's the capability that we have to be in search of. And I think that's the way we have to look at investing in artificial technology, sorry, artificial intelligence and how we deploy it. I recently asked a, a group of executives, maybe about a hundred of them or so, when you think about where your organization is investing in AI and how you're using it. It, it was amazing. Nearly 63% of them said 
we're focused on internal operations and processes, not demand side, not supply side. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, because all we hear about are demand and supply issues. We don't hear about the internal operational challenges. But when I saw that, is the thing, is that the easy place to do it? Is it, or is it the best place to do it? And frankly, I believe for many of them, it's an easy place to start because we haven't figured out how to crack the nut to do it, to do it, to either apply demand or supply side, where it, it's pretty clear those are the areas where we need it the most. But don't you think if we've been talking about siloed segments of business for how long? Did a long time. Everybody complains about how their businesses, business processes are siloed and there's lack of communication or what have you. And so if we're still dealing with these issues and we're entering a world with extreme volatility, do you think AI is something that can help solve some of those problems? Do you think it's a mindset thing? It's a people thing? Or is it all? It's interesting. I, I am not a firm believer that AI can overcome the challenges that organization have with the lack of integration between business processes, nor can it help to overcome some of that standardization with respect to business processes. Organizations are really going to have to focus on what are my core business processes? Do I need to redesign, re-engineer, re-imagine them? And then figuring out what is that point of connection amongst those processes? And then when I turn my attention to AI, what I'm turning my attention to AI to bring about is I want accuracy of execution with respect to those processes. I want consistency of execution when it comes to that. And then most importantly, I want optimal efficiency. And so those are the three things that you can strive for, but that you can't do that without going back and revisiting what those processes are and how those processes look. Because remember, all the data that's going to feed those models is the result of those processes. And if the process is siloed, the data is likely fragmented. And if the data is fragmented, then the decision points that the model is going to utilize are going to be flawed, which are going to lead to erroneous conclusions and recommendations. And, and that's the problem. And then that's the vicious circle that we keep going on, which leads to these erroneous decision making. Mm -hmm. You talked in, in your keynote, again, I know I keep referencing it because it was it blew me away, some of the things that you talked about. You talked about observing a need for real-time decisions with true time data. Now, <laughs> yes. before you, because I was just going to ask you, what does that mean? And how, and how does that, what does that mean practically? But before I, I say that, I have to say that almost everyone I interview tells me that at the heart of some of their problems are, is this whole conundrum of data. Too yes. much data, very little time, basically. <laughs> but so, so talk to us a little bit about true time data. What does that mean? Yeah, so, so when I think about true time data, it really cuts to the essence of what you just said, whereas their data is voluminous, but I don't need it all to make a decision. So what I call true time is the right amount of data in the right context and at the right level for the person who has to make a real-time decision. Decisions need to be made in real time. We don't always need real-time data. In fact, the reality is if I received all data as it was being generated, I would be paralyzed because there's no way I can make it yeah. through enough of that to determine what's valuable and what's not valuable to make a decision. So what ends up happening is that I end up going with my gut no matter what. And so people are saying, we, we gave you the data, but you're not using the data because the data is not on a form or format or at a level that individual can understand. I believe in operational analytics. Imagine you're in a manufacturing environment. And I know we want to set the culture from the top, but reality is this. If you want to have an analytics or data-driven decision-making culture, you have to focus on where the vast majority of the decisions are made, not where the scale of the decisions are made. The decisions that are made by the C-suite are much more impactful. The scale of those decisions are larger. Mm -hmm. The problem is those aren't frequent decisions. The more frequent decisions happen on the ground. 
on the shop floor, in the the warehouse, whatever. But that individual doesn't want everything. They don't need everything. You've got to give them the right amount in the right context, meaning the environment in which they work. And it has to be at a level that they can understand and appreciate. And they then can make that decision that needs to be made. That's what true time data is, which then enables real time decisions. Yeah, it's a combination of sort of real time information segmented to you and your truth Really? That's right. That's right. It's customized and some, and to some degree personalized. So when I look at what some organizations are working towards these analytics as a service, where they have these models that have already been designed and the decision you need to make. And so you have this pool of models to actually choose from where it pulls in the appropriate data relative to the decision that you need to make. So I'm not having to build and test this model on the fly. And that's what I mean by putting solutions at the fingertips of individuals who don't have to be experts when it comes to this stuff. They're experts in their craft. And it, that's well, exactly. what exactly. They're, they're experts in their truth and what they're and what they're doing. So they need that real time, true time data. Okay, I get that. What practical advice would you give to supply chain executives, supply chain leaders that are listening here that are perhaps getting pelted left and center by <laughs> buzzwords and, and transformation and people selling to them that they need the next best solution? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you go get through this noise? First thing I always say, take a step back right? There's a reason so many of these terms are coming at you. And there's a reason why there's so much overlap between terminology is that entities have a vested interest in selling you solutions. Don't look for a solution provider, look for a partner. Mm -hmm. A true partner might have a solution, but more importantly, they're going to let you know where it benefits you and where it doesn't help you. In fact, and when we start looking at what companies have been doing in response or in reaction to what we've seen with respect to COVID, their focus primarily when they go to market, they're going to those solution providers to say, help me understand what you offer and why it's important for me to consider. It's not about you need to make a sale and it's not about I'm going to make a purchase. Let's look at what my business is. Let's look at my landscape and where I'm trying to go and help me get there. But part of that means we need a digital strategy. We need an analytic strategy. And separate from all those, we absolutely have to have a data strategy. And what I found is fewer than 10% of the organizations we have worked with have a data strategy, but yet that's core to the other two. So when your tech partner comes in and helps you, they realize we can't get to B because there's still some things lacking when we were trying to work on A. And then the other thing is reimagining or rethinking. Pilot used to be about a proof of concept. That's not what we think about it now. I've already made the decision that this is what my business needs. The pilot is now about how, when, and where to scale the solution that I'm going to invest in. It's not about should I scale it. And your technology partner should help you go through that particular process. So you're maturing as you go through the journey, which is likely to ensure greater success and greater value from those investments in the future. Randy, you've given us quite a lot of information. And you know what I think, like I was when I listened to your keynote, blown away by the, just what you say makes so much sense. What you say makes so much sense. And I think when you think about a lot of these companies in a bit of paralysis, digital paralysis, transformation paralysis, it's, and it's really just mind boggling, like you say, that they don't have a data strategy or they don't have a digital strategy per se. Maybe if they took a step back, like you suggest, they'd be able to do that. So I, I, want, I want to thank you, Randy, for being here. Lastly, before I go, one last question. Predictions. What, ex- what technology out there besides AI and ML excites you? What's coming down the road and what do you think? Wow, that's exciting. 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think if I'm more excited about anything, I don't know that it's any one technology. I think it's the culmination of a multitude of technologies. Right. So I, the, the AI ML definitely has tremendous ceiling. But really, when it comes to autonomous vehicles and drones, I really do believe we're going to see dramatic maturation in that particular space. I do think when we look at over the road, it probably has the greatest opportunity. And what I mean by that, more commercial is probably a better term mm -hmm. rather than over the road. But think about commercial from the perspective of utilizing it in the yard. When the driver pulls up, what is that driver really doing at that point that's value add that the truck couldn't do in and of itself? And yeah. can I now free the driver to go do other things to make this process more efficient so I can get them in and out? Imagine what we're seeing in the ports, the level of congestion and the constraints. But if we had some form of automation with respect to that, we can help to ease a lot of these burdens, even if we don't add bodies. And then one last piece, which I'm hoping that many organizations will look at, and I know it can easily be crouched in ESG or corporate social responsibility. But the thing is, we have a large population of handy capable individuals that if we, but if we utilize them with collaborative robots or collaborative technology, augment, we can help them. augment them, exactly. We can now increase the workforce where we have dire shortages, but you have people who are interested, people who are able with the right capabilities mm -hmm. to help address some of those things. So I'm really more focused on what's the amalgamation or the consolidation of some of these things that are going to help advance. That is what we, what I think about when I think transformative. Can we put something or someone out there where they're capable to, to do something now that they otherwise would not have been capable of doing? Exciting times ahead. Exciting times ahead. Randy, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your ideas with us. And uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing you again in an, another session. My pleasure, Maria. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those of you listening, we'll catch you again at the next one. Thank you.